0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with
1: Viator. Like many people in the age of COVID-19, I am self-isolating at home. And that self-isolation thing, I'm guessing that for a lot of people, it feels like the only thing that's being done in the US right now to stop the pandemic. And don't get me wrong, that's extremely important. But what about the rest? What can medicine do to help us out right now? How fast can science move during a pandemic? That's today on the show. I'm Ariel Jim Ross. This is Reset. Liz Lapato, deputy editor for The Verge and longtime science reporter, The coronavirus pandemic is having huge repercussions in terms of people's health and in terms of the economy. And I think a lot of people right now are wondering, what can medicine do to stop this? So where are we on that front right now? Are we close to having a vaccine? No, we're not. I mean, I know it's really frustrating that the scientific
0: process takes time, but unfortunately the scientific process takes time. And that's really the thing we're short on
1: right now. So where do we stand right now in terms of scientific solutions to coronavirus in the U.S.?
0: So when we're thinking about this, um, there are sort of three major components to the coronavirus response. And the first and the most crucial is testing, and we're behind. Um, we really should have started this in January. The second um, is vaccines. Um They are slower. A vaccine, like the polio vaccine, for instance, that we all got as kids, it prevents you from getting sick. Or if you do get sick, you don't get as sick. And the third is treatment, which is, you know, something you can give to somebody who's already ill. And it's something that a doctor is giving you to try to make the course of the disease less severe.
1: So let's take those three things one at a time. Where are we in the process of making and developing a vaccine?
0: I mean, we're at least a year and maybe more like two years out. So the first thing to know is that we've never developed a coronavirus
1: vaccine. Okay, that seems really important. Yeah, and I, I,
0: you know, a lot of times people will say things like, oh, but, you know, we get flu vaccines really fast, and we developed this fast vaccine to the swine flu that was circulating in 2009. So why can't we do it this way? And the difference is that we know flu really, really well. And so we've been making these vaccines for flus for a long time. In this case, we know what strain is circulating, but we've never made a coronavirus vaccine before. So this is just a lot of question marks. We're going from something we know really, really well, which is the flu, to something that we don't know well at all.
1: Okay. so are there trials underway? Have we have we even
0: started? Yes. The most advanced so far is Moderna Pharmaceuticals. So there is a clinical trial currently taking place in Seattle. Um, Recruitment began in March. Uh, It's 45 people between the ages of 18 and 55 who are healthy. They'll get two shots about a month apart. Right. So that's just a test for safety,
1: just to make sure that it doesn't kill people, basically.
0: Uh, I believe so, yes. Um, It's the earliest stage of testing. And they haven't necessarily done as much uh, testing in animals as one might ordinarily do before moving into people. Uh, they are instead pursuing that in parallel with um, trials in, in humans because there is this particular need to move as quickly as possible. And like they haven't totally past. Um, animal research. There has been some, just not as much as one ordinarily does before you move into people, in part because there is this real need for speed.
1: Given that we've never made a vaccine for a coronavirus before, is there anything special about this vaccine that we need to know? Mm -hmm.
0: So this was actually an unusually fast vaccine that was made because we had identified the virus on January 7th, and less than a week later, researchers at Moderna and NIH um, had a proposed sequence for the vaccine. But part of that is that this is a different kind of vaccine than we've ever made before. It's focusing on messenger RNA. And if you don't know what that is, that's okay. Uh, Messenger RNA, it's this, like, sort of genetic fragment that's used... Uh, by other cell structures, um, to know how to make a protein. And essentially what they're doing is they're trying to get the body to produce its own virus-like proteins. Um, And once we've done that, the body might be able to recognize the real thing and bite it.
1: Interesting. Okay, so this is just, this is kind of a, a different hacky kind of way to to use a vaccine to create immunity.
0: Yeah. So right now, most vaccines use weakened versions of a virus or a dead virus or uh, a similar version that doesn't usually infect humans or proteins from the surface of the virus um, so that our bodies learn how to fight these infections. And this is just a completely different approach.
1: Are there any other vaccines that we should know about right now that are in development? Yeah, so
0: there's a second company, CureVac, that's doing something pretty similar to Moderna. Um, And then there are sort of three big pharma players that are in this space. Johnson & Johnson and Sanofi have all announced that they're attempting vaccines. Johnson & Johnson is working with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, doing something that's pretty similar to the Ebola vaccine. And Sanofi is uh, based on work that people did on SARS, which is also a coronavirus, but it's probably not going to be tested in people for at least a year.
1: OK, so that's just development, right? Then there's production of a vaccine. How long does that take? How long before, you know, if, if we're talking development, it might take a year or two. Then how long before we can actually make enough doses for, for everybody?
0: So production is a limiting factor on getting a vaccine ready. Um, you need to be able to produce at scale. And production for vaccines can be tricky because you aren't dealing with something like uh, Tylenol or you have uh, a small molecule drug. Um, you're dealing with something that's much finickier. Um, and it's, uh, it's made in living cells, usually. Um, it's one of the reasons why certain companies specialize in vaccines.
1: Given how things are going right now, is a vaccine going to be useful? (laughs) Well, uh, this depends on how you define useful. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, lay it on me. Um, (laughs) So is it going to stop
0: the current outbreak? No, it's not. You should know that the test numbers, the number of cases, all of these things, they're going to continue to go up. This is not going to be fast enough to stop what is already happening. That said, um, we know certain things about how diseases work. Like, sometimes there are second and third waves of transmission, for instance. And, you know, sometimes they linger. Like, uh, HIV is still a pandemic. It's still around. People still get sick and die. So depending on how this plays out, it may very well be useful to have a vaccine for COVID-19 because it
1: might not go away. Given all that, given that, one, vaccine production takes a a long time and is complicated, and two, that we don't really know how useful a vaccine will be, it all really all depends on how this pandemic plays out. Should we be focused on treatment right now? Does that make sense? I think it's probably a good idea, actually. So
0: earlier this week, Maria van Kerkhove of the WHO said that there are 200 and maybe even 300 clinical trials underway on COVID-19 treatments. So there are a lot of people who are just trying to throw everything they can at this.
1: And what could some of those treatments look like?
0: There are a couple of ways that we can approach treatments, and I'm going to start with the very oldest, it's called serum therapy. It was first used in 1891 to treat diphtheria. And what you do is you extract um, some some samples from a survivor and you give them to a patient. Um, and that sometimes can help fight off the disease. Now possible side effects include fever, allergic reactions, and the possibility of infectious disease transmission. So. The other thing to keep in mind about that is that it's not very efficient because, you know, what you collect from one survivor may only be enough for one patient. Right. So that's like a potential last-ditch m- measure we could be using. I believe Johns Hopkins is looking into it. Another possibility is a drug uh, made by Gilead. Uh, it's called remdesivir. Um And so it was being developed for Ebola, but there were hints in the clinical development that it might work on SARS and MERS, too. Those are also coronaviruses. So it's currently in five clinical trials, and we may get results as soon as next month. Um, And that is the the fastest thing we have going. Um, And basically, the way it works is it stops the virus from uh, replicating itself in the body. Which is not a full cure, to be clear. The earlier you deliver it,
1: the more effective it will be. So what I'm getting from you right now is, one, vaccines, very far off. Two, treatments. We will start getting results in a month or two, but that's just the beginning of results. And we have no idea if these things are actually going to work, which leaves testing, right? Yes. Is that something that we should think of as a way to fight this pandemic?
0: Testing is one of the most important things we can do.
1: So right now, if you
0: want to prevent people from getting sick, you have to know who is sick, right? You need to be testing really widely uh, because that's the only way you have a hope of stopping the chain of transmission. So one thing that you can do if you're testing um, in a very, very wide way is you can identify people who seem healthy and be like, hey, by the way, you're actually sick and you need to stay home so that you don't infect anybody else. And usually people do. Um, I think most of us don't want to be responsible for somebody else getting sick. And it also helps with resource allocation, right? Like, this is a respiratory illness. So that means that there are going to be some people who are going to need help with oxygen levels and with ventilators and with hospital beds. And if you don't know how much um, disease is circulating in your community, it's really hard to put together estimates for those kinds of supplies. Right. So these kinds of, this, this kind of information is really foundational to having a good response. And, you know, one place that you can look that's done it really well is South Korea. They've been testing something like 10,000 people a day. Just everybody. Uh, whether you have symptoms or not.
1: In South Korea's capital, Seoul, drive-through coronavirus testing gives 10,000 people their results every day, all part of a national action plan that's pulled infection rates down without any city lockdown.
0: And if you look at Italy, on the other hand, they've only been testing people who are symptomatic. Um, And things in Italy are not great right now. Their hospitals in particular seem to be really overwhelmed. But it's Italy that continues to suffer the most, with a record one day death toll of 368 people on Sunday alone.
1: So we want to be more like South Korea than Italy. Why do you think we have been so bad at testing people? Donald Trump is our president. It's really that simple.
0: I mean, look, if you look at his responses to this virus, they have sort of run the gamut from denialism. Now
2: the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus.
0: And this is their new hoax. To the power of positive thinking.
2: Now the virus that we're talking about having to do, you know, a lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat.
0: Like, we shut down some travel, but the thing is the world is so connected that shutting down travel at this point doesn't help you. Um, and instead of, you know, starting testing in January when we should have started testing, we didn't. We didn't use the WHO test. We decided to develop our own, and then there were problems with our test. The whole thing has been bungled, and you know, that that is the fault of the federal government.
1: Okay, so as Liz just made clear, scientists and the speed of science itself aren't the only factors to think about when we talk about treatments, vaccines, or testing. The federal government is a major player here, too. So, does it matter that scientists have kicked it into high gear if the government hasn't? That's after the break. This is Reset. Liz Lapato, deputy editor at The Verge, we were just talking about the federal government's role in issues with testing. And you, you mentioned that we should have started testing back in January. Uh, did we even have the ability to test back then? We could have tested
0: if we had used the WHO's test. We chose not to. And it's not clear why we did that. Um, I am very, very curious to find out. But... In all seriousness, you know, we, we slowed ourselves down by wanting to create our own test. And for a while, there was a real bottleneck because um, part of the test had been contaminated. Some of the supplies had been contaminated. So it was really hard to get a good test done. Um, and then for a certain period, it was only the CDC that could conduct the tests. And now we're seeing the tests being more widely available um, at state public health labs and some commercial labs. But really, we're behind. On top of that, we um, have a pandemic preparedness program. But unfortunately, funding for that was cut by Donald Trump two years ago.
1: Okay, so the government botched testing and stopped funding a program that would have helped us prepare for something like this. So what about treatments? What's the government's role in helping us find those? That's a great question.
0: So when it comes to treatments, um, there are a lot of Uh, public-private partnerships where knowledge that's been acquired by these government agencies that have been tracking the illness is being used by pharma companies to sort of create these treatments. Um, I imagine that there's probably also going to be a
1: role for the FDA as we start to look at approvals. What would the FDA's approval process for a drug or a treatment like this normally look like? It depends on how we define
0: normal. So there is the normal process that the FDA goes through for something like a new heart medication, where there are three phases of clinical testing. Phase one is a tiny trial to make sure that it's like safe enough to be in more people. Phase two is another bigger safety trial. And then phase three is the big trial for effectiveness and any other potential side effects. Um, and if you go through all three of those those tests, those phases of testing, Um, and, uh, to be clear, a lot of times you need to do multiple trials in each phase. Um, you then submit it all to the FDA and they review your information and then they approve it. Now, what's going to happen here most likely is the fast track process. Um, and that's, uh, reserved for specific kinds of drugs, um, specifically for drugs that treat serious conditions or fill an unmet net medical need. And the idea is that it gets uh, the drug to the patient sooner.
1: Okay. And so that means that you're you're skipping over a bunch of steps presumably.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's look, if there's no therapy available, that's obviously an unmet need. And then um that designation um you know leads to a quicker approval process because there is nothing else
1: available. Okay. And from what I understand, there's sort of another way as well, right? There's, there's the method where you have a patient who is in a dire situation and you just basically just try stuff, right?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's helpful to know a little bit about the AIDS crisis here because uh, that is the origin of some of the, the ways that people are able to get these treatments now.
1: Interesting. Okay. How does the AIDS crisis play into this? You may remember
0: that in the 1980s, um, the AIDS epidemic was happening and there was no treatment. And so one of the things that uh, the activists of that period really lobbied for was something that we now call the compassionate use exemption. Um, And it is for drugs that have not been proven to be therapies to be used for people who might otherwise die. So if you are able to get some of the experimental drugs um, while you're being treated for COVID-19, it's because of the work that those activists did back then.
1: Okay, so we've been focused a lot on treatments because that seems like the option that'll get to us the fastest. But out there in, in the public the conversation has largely been around vaccines. Why is that? I think there are two
0: reasons. I think reason one is that people don't want to get sick and the vaccine is how you don't get sick. So people are very interested in that. And who can blame them? Uh, But thing two is that our president has been promising a vaccine and much more quickly than I think a vaccine can probably be developed.
2: I've heard very quick numbers, a matter of months, and I've heard... Pretty much a year would be an outside number. So I think that's not a bad, that's not a bad range. But if you're talking about three to four months in a couple of cases and a year. And he's been and
0: saying cases. things like, oh, it'll be available soon. We've made tremendous progress. And like, you know, we have made a lot of progress, but I don't think we're going to get a vaccine
1: within the year. OK, so when President Trump says we're doing great, we're right on track, we'll have a vaccine soon, that is not accurate.
0: No, it's not, and this is one of the biggest problems with Donald Trump when it comes to the response to this is that he just says stuff, and I don't even know whether he knows it has a relationship to reality or not. Like I, don't, I, I hesitate to even call it lies, right? <laughs> because like, in order to lie, you have to know what the truth is. Mm. Um, but he has just been saying things uh, for months now um, about the coronavirus that may or may not be true. And I think it has really confused people and it has led to a slowed response.
1: Okay, so the federal government is not doing a great job. And Trump has repeatedly said things that are incorrect about this pandemic. He also made a declaration of of a national emergency last Friday.
2: To unleash the full power of the federal government in this effort today, I am officially declaring a national emergency. Two very big words.
1: How does that affect treatment research and and sort of hospital operations? Is that going to do any good?
0: Yeah, I mean, like this is, again, this is part of the problem, right? So, you know, on February 24th, Donald Trump was telling us that the coronavirus was very much under control in the USA, and that's not true.
2: We think we have it very well under control. Uh, We have very little problem in this country at this moment.
0: Um, and you know, he said things like, we're very close to the vaccine." And now, one of the things that has happened as he was doing this announcement, he was like, "Oh, Google's going to make a website that like will help send you to a uh, testing center."
2: I want to thank Google. Google is helping to develop a website. It's going to be very quickly done to determine whether a test is warranted and to facilitate testing at a nearby convenient location. Google has uh, 1,700 engineers working on this right now. They've made tremendous progress.
0: And it turns out, A, the site is being made by Verily, which is not Google. It is another subsidiary of Google's parent company, Alphabet. B, it is only available for the Bay Area. C, it was only meant for providers, not the general public, though they have since changed that so the general public can access it. And D, when the site went online Monday, it hit capacity really
1: quickly, so a lot of people couldn't use it. Oh, wow. Okay, so if you watched that press conference on Friday and you were like, cool, Google is on it, almost none of that is correct. I mean, that's one of the biggest
0: problems is that when you're in a public health emergency like this, you need to have clear communication from leadership. And right now, the president of the United States is not doing that.
1: It's increasingly clear that the federal government, whether it's the U.S. or South Korea or Taiwan or Italy, has a really important role to play in helping people understand the urgency, in helping funnel money, in helping direct science. All of that is something that the government has a role to play in here. With that in mind, how do you think the next few months are going to play out in the U.S.? It's an open question.
0: So one of the other things that's really important when it comes to these kinds of emergencies, is the local government. Um, And you're seeing local governments respond really differently. Um, The local government has a lot to do with determining what businesses remain open, what businesses are closed, um, and whether people should shelter in place. And that's why you'll see things that are different between, for instance, San Francisco and LA. So I am hopeful about public health departments around the US. maybe maybe foolishly hopeful but i am hopeful that these public health departments are going to make decisions that will help people stay safe so that means um that you know how it can be a little eerie to go outside and there's nobody there that actually is good that means that we're taking this seriously like all of those waves of cancellation of events like good yes that's how we slow it down So, you know, um, my hope is that we're going to see a strong response from local officials.
1: I gotta say, the thing that really jumps out to me in everything that you just said is the parallel between this pandemic and, weirdly enough, climate change. Because for the past few years under the Trump administration, the federal government has done basically nothing and in many instances has made things worse. And so the real action has happened on the state level or the local level. And it seems like we are in yet another situation where we have to turn to our local officials for for hope and for action.
0: Right. That's definitely where we are right now. Um, I've been thinking a lot about Alexis de Tocqueville lately um, because he wrote that The backbone of America is not actually our federal government. It's all of our local governments and being involved in local politics. And I feel like we have, to some degree, lost sight of that. Um, And so it's nice to see it coming back into play uh, in this moment, um, that we're seeing real leadership from local governments when the federal government is unable
1: or unwilling to act. Liz Lapato, deputy editor at The Verge, thank you so much for talking to me about this. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Last Friday, the FDA made its first approvals for commercial coronavirus tests. The FDA made its decision in less than 24 hours, which honestly is lightning fast for that particular branch of the government. The two companies behind the tests, Roche and Thermo Fisher, say they will now be able to ship close to 2 million tests to the U.S., and they hope to make more in the coming weeks. This is Reset, and I'm Ariel Dermross. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at ADRS. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We publish episodes three times a week, on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear... Take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps, and I read the reviews. We'll be back on Sunday. Later, nerds.